Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series that talks to people who stand up, speak out, or just challenge us to think a little differently. My guest today is the incredible Sarah Sproul. Talk about working from the heart. You're going to hear in this episode how Sarah pours emotion into her work every day and she has truly found her calling in life. Sarah Sproul started as an occupational therapist in her homeland of Australia before she made her way here to Ireland and did a master's in sexuality studies. And she now dedicates her working life to breaking down the stigma and shame around sex and sexuality, particularly between parents and their kids. Today, she talks to me about the personal experience that led to her doing that master's, why her work is actually so much bigger than just teaching kids about the birds and the bees and the importance of leaning into sensitive and uncomfortable topics so that we're raising humans who are open and accepting of themselves and of others. I'd heard about Sarah from a brilliant member of my mum network, Melissa, at the school gate one day. She was telling me about how delighted she was that Sarah was going to be giving a talk at the school to her kids who are a bit older than mine and how it was quite progressive of the school to have her in. Now, as a parent, I haven't necessarily dreaded the talk as it's known. So far, my son is 10. There's certain topics I've been open about, less so with my daughter. She's a, a bit younger than him. But there are certain things that have worried me, such as the prevalence of online porn and smartphones getting into the hands of kids younger and younger and what that means. And also that I'm able to handle topics such as gender, sexuality, consent and body image in the most empowering and best way that I can. It is a minefield. But Sarah just takes the sting out of it all. I was blown away by our conversation, which, as I say, I thought was just going to be about sex education and the newly emerging traditionalist Catholic Ireland. But it's actually so much more. Sarah is well worth a follow on Instagram and YouTube, where her chats in the car give so many tips and insights. And you need to check out her bright pink glasses, if nothing else. Prepare to fall in love with Sarah Sproul. You're very welcome to Changemakers. Thanks so much. I am delighted to be here. It's an honour to be asked. You did seem to be quite into the title of the podcast. So would you have considered yourself to be a changemaker? What what motivated you to get into this whole area in the first yeah, place? See, when, when you said about changemaking, I was like, I didn't naturally identify with it. But then as, as I sat with it, I was like, oh, actually, I am bringing about quite significant cultural change in families um and but I didn't get into it to do that I got into it because 11 year old Sarah me um was felt alone and unsupported during puberty I have this really strong memory of um waiting to go to sleep one night and I don't know about you Claire but I was sort of looking at my body and I noticed that oh like I've got breasts growing but to me, it looked like I only had one. And sitting sort of on my bed that night and imagining that I was going to grow into an adult who had one breast um, just filled me with such fear and shame and worry. And I didn't have an adult to go to, to ask, like, what's going on? Is this normal? And so um, because I was raised by missionary parents, I prayed to God that if I could please have two breasts roughly the same size, I would always be good. And, you know, it actually, I feel so sad when I think of that girl because she had unnecessary shame and feelings of being alone. And I 
I don't want that for any other 11-year-old, whether or not whatever body they're growing up in. And I absolutely didn't want that for my kids too. It was just like there was there was no other option but to learn how to be there for growing kids around their body and sexuality and puberty and then um, take the steps to work out, well, how can I share this information? Because I'm not the only person raising children who want the absolute best for them and want to be there for them throughout the years and want them to be able to come to them with anything, everything. Um, and sure enough, uh, I am building a community of parents and guardians exactly like that. There are hundreds, probably thousands, millions of us out there who want to do something different for our children than what we had growing up. And it's so interesting. I've been thinking about it a lot looking into your work and ahead of this conversation. Why is this a bodily function that is shrouded in secrecy and shame? We're willing to talk about everything else. Why not this one? Is this something that was covered even in your MA about sexuality? Is it because we're laid bare? Is it our most vulnerable? What is it that started all this secrecy? One theory would be that it's about control. Because it is so central to who we are, that if a government or a religion or some other power can control our sexuality and make us feel bad about it, then they essentially control us because we're not free. It's where we're sort of stuck feeling like because it's so innate in us, there's such an an urge to be who we are that um, if we're told that that's wrong, it's sort of like there's such a tension there, isn't there? There's like a there's something in my body is what it is, and yet I'm being told on the outside that it's wrong or dangerous or bad or scary. And so there's nowhere to go really between those two things. And, you know, living in Ireland, we absolutely see that in in our history of it, it didn't matter who was telling us that we shouldn't be having sex outside of marriage. We were still having sex outside of marriage and then dealing with the consequences of it, whether that's mother and baby homes or, you know, what, whatever it was. So it's like our sexuality cannot be repressed without massive, either massive social consequences or massive personal consequences. And how important is your childhood in all of that and the way you learn about sex in you as an adult? Well, it's, it's massively important. There's so many things when we're growing up that we can have a foundation put in place for us. So um, I'm supporting parents of children of any age to start conversations. And in fact, the mantra really is start as early as possible. As soon as you discover that this part of parenting is important, then we can start having conversations because habits are formed in our children when they're young, um, you know, like we're, we're, we're teaching them table manners, which isn't maybe you would think particularly important in the grand scheme of things, but it's absolutely a social skill that will help them go through their life and be able to go out in company and be accepted because they're not sort of using their hands when they're in the, the, Shelburne dining room or whatever it is that we're we're teaching them the skills to get through life and the earlier we do that then the more ingrained they're going to be like emotional intelligence and how to keep their body clean and all those sort of things so when it comes to talking about sexuality or understanding that they have a sexual self that's even more important to develop the habit in early because we are countering cultural shame about it and so there's not cultural shame about um, having table manners or um, whether you ha- have had swimming lessons or not, but there absolutely is cultural shame that prevents us from um, being able to speak up for our own sexual needs or um, our own boundaries, um, cultural shame around whether we can ask our friend for a tampon or a pad if we're caught short. You know, there's that sense of like, 
like that sort of like, oh, I, I know it's okay to ask for a pat or tampon, but I feel this sort of deep little voice inside me saying, oh, but it's awkward and I'm embarrassed and what if she looks at me or he looks at me is like, why are you why are you saying that word in public? You know, so to develop really strongly rooted anti-shame um, beliefs or strategies in our kids is one I actually can't think of a more powerful um, life-changing ability to give them, quite frankly. And and that's why it's so important to do it early on because we're layering on um, information, first of all, but we're actually layering on skills. And we are from the very beginnings of their growing up, we are creating a culture in our family where we talk about sensitive stuff. We talk about sensitive stuff in our house. And every day that goes by, every week that goes by, that our child sees that demonstrated from us is another brick in their strong foundation of being able to stand up for themselves and ask for what they want and know who they are and unapologetically sort of take themselves out in the world. And, you know, I don't know about you, but that when I think of that for my kids, I'm just like, oh, yeah, bring it on. And I never really thought about how empowering this sort of knowledge is. I think historically it was kind of a chat that had to be had to just fill you in about how babies were made. But so much was left out of the conversation puberty kind of glossed over, certainly consent not discussed. So it really gives you um, bodily mm. autonomy and, and confidence in situations. Even when I think about myself as a teenager fumbling through it all, I wish I had have had the the knowledge to empower myself a little bit to, I mean, experimentation is all very normal part of growing up, but the not knowing puts you a little bit on the back foot, doesn't it? About what you should and shouldn't do or could and couldn't do. And when it's not open for discussion in your home, then you don't discuss it with your friends. And and I suppose even if you do manage it to discuss it with your friends, it's like the blind leading the blind mostly because um, it is pioneering work that we do if we're able to create a culture in our family where we can talk about things and upskill our children. So what that means is when, when I talk about it being pioneering work, it doesn't mean it means that the majority of families are not doing it. So the it's most likely that our children, just like you were describing Claire, will will have friends who are on maybe the same playing field as them that they don't have the skills to negotiate consent or stand up for what they want or really believe deep down in their heart that you know they are worthy of respect and love even if they are a little bit different either in their sexuality or their gender or whatever it is so you raise a good point there there is sort of inevitable struggle in our growing up years but how much more um, supporting could it be to know that the people at home, we can come home and talk to them about anything at all. We will never be on our own um, with complexities or difficulties. And, and I suppose when I'm talking about complexities and difficulties, I'm also talking about um, mistakes, like making decisions let me see if I can think of an example, right? If our if our child um, has grown up in our house, like we talk about consent in our house all the time, um, but if they go out to a to a disco, I've got teens, I've got like a seventeen year old, a fifteen year old, and a thirteen year old. So before COVID, we were in full disco mode. So they go to the disco, and their friends are drinking and vomiting on the on the floor, and all sorts of things are happening. If we have created a culture in our family, not that just we talk about difficult things, but we accept that people make mistakes and that's part of being human. And while we want the best for you, if you make a mistake, come home and talk to us and we've got your back. If we have that culture as well in our family, then it's not this sense of having to hide the 
unacceptable parts of ourselves or or not tell stories about our friend who vomited on the ground because we're fearful of our parents' judgment, right? And so one of the things apart about creating this culture in families is that it also brings the beautiful side gift of openness, um, not just openness around sensitive stuff, but openness around being human and fallible. It's really subversive to be imperfect and to welcome imperfection in our children. And it's com- it's completely um, part of this same whole that we're talking about because imperfection is also a sensitive subject. I and mean, you wouldn't have even made the connection between sex education and this bigger conversation we're having, but you're so right. And we're really changing how we live now. So there would have been a real hierarchy, as you say, of children and parents and parents were to be feared and you were told things um, and you either took it or you didn't. I mean, and that's not to say there wasn't love and fun and all that. That was just the style. But when you remove fear and you have more openness, that ultimately would lead to a more open adult. And, And that's certainly what we're seeing we need more of in this world, open to have difficult discussions, to admit vulnerability and to lean into sensitive stuff. That's that's what yes, we need. That's exactly right. And not just because of our relationship with our children, but because when we're open and and less autocratic, for want of a better word, um, that's the beginning of consent culture in our family because power imbalances like adults know everything kids don't know anything and adults tell children and young people what to do because they have more experience that is a dynamic that if we put that on an intimate relationship if we if we sort of train our child to understand that their what they their voice or their experience doesn't count as much as someone older and more powerful that's a dangerous dynamic for them to experience because when you put that into a relationship, what happens if the person who has more power gets to tell the other person what to do and what sort of relationship they're going to have and what sort of friends they're allowed to have? And and as, as soon as you start going down that track, you're like, whoa, that is not cool. I do not want that for my kid. So while parents do have a responsibility, we of course the buck stops with us in terms of our guardianship of the people we're raising, at the same time, it is possible to sort of level the playing field in our family culture and start giving our children the ability to choose particular things for themselves, practice what it feels like to say no to something, Um, listen to and experience what it feels like in their body when someone else says no to them because, you know, this is a two-way street. So, Sensitive conversations, while most people will think, yeah, it's about like how a baby's made and how embarrassingly do we now have to talk about the penis going into the vagina, it's so not just about that. That's that's the entry-level conversation that will draw most people, most parents and guardians into my world. But once they're here, um, it's like, oh, this is so much more and so richer and so um, so many more opportunities to build deeper connection with our growing children. And that is the thing that fills me with the most joy, to hear stories from families who've been through the Evolve School or or have been listening to the podcast for a long time, come back and say to me, oh, wow, I just had, you know, the best interaction with my child about bedtime and there was consent woven into bedtime. So, there's, it, it can't stop. There are a myriad of ways we can weave this idea of healthy relationships and, um, and building connection with our children just in everyday life. And that's why I think it's an all-encompassing conversation because not everybody is a parent or even wants to be a parent, but everybody's been a child and everybody's in society now. So it actually does influence and matter everybody. So are we supposed to feel like sexual beings. I think everybody has different levels of libido, but as a base, are we supposed to feel fully confident, 
in ourselves as a sexual person? I think it's a tall order to sort of say, oh, yes, everyone needs to feel confident as a sexual person because we live in a broken world. Um, Our world doesn't support sexual confidence. So, you know, while in an ideally, if we lived in utopia, we would all have sort of an understanding of who we are and what our sexual self is like, and we would be able to communicate that. We would also be able to respect the differences between our sexual self and someone else's sexual self. Um, We would also, and when I say sexual self, I don't mean that we have sex. Our sexual self could look like we don't have sex and that we are confident and sure in that knowledge. Like um, who we are sexually changes throughout our lifespan, throughout the whole of our lifespan. We constantly learn about ourselves sexually and it can be impacted by our mental health, our age, our physical health, our economic status, um, you know, the political climate, that whether there's a pandemic or not, all those, our, our sexual self is impacted by so many different things. So I think the confidence you talk of, Claire, there is more about a confidence that this part of us changes there's no right or wrong type of sexual self to have in terms of consensual sexual stuff Um, and that there's no pressure to have a certain amount of sex or only a certain amount of sex you know that who we are is genuinely okay that's what sexual confidence would look like it wouldn't look like being able to walk into a bar with our you know our heels and our whatever and um just feeling like oh yeah you know I've got it going on and and that's not what I'm talking about it's it's that deep sense of knowing that we are enough and we are worthy exactly as we are so where are we at with sex education in Ireland at the moment what what's on the curriculum and what's missing such a big question (laughs) so at the moment um the sex education in ireland as a general rule is is broken it's a it's a broken part of our education system um the curriculum we're still working off is over 20 years old now um and and You know, this is no fault of the teachers in the classrooms who are doing awesome work, but the the culture that supports them and the curriculum that they have to work with and maybe even the training that they might have been given to attempt relationship and sexuality education is is lacking. So um, some, some schools will bring in a sex educator like me to deliver the relationship and sex ed program for fifth and sixth class. So those are 11 and 12 year old kids. And, you know, that's okay, but it's, it's a little too little too late really. So for example, I was in a school about a month ago and I had the whole day to spend with a sixth class, a class of sixth class kids. And we managed to go through what the curriculum says, which is puberty so puberty education, um, sort of general hygiene-related stuff. Um, we did genital anatomy and we did um, human conception. And the Irish curriculum says that you talk about all those things in relation to like a, a man and a woman, and I use those words in sort of like air quotes, um, having some sort of intercourse to make a baby so that's the curriculum and if you know you're probably listening to that and I'm listening to myself say that going rolling my eyes going oh my goodness that is so problematic in so many ways and so limited and it doesn't allow our young people to um to see that wow there are all different types of sexualities and we are all awesome and all deserving of respect like we'll talk a bit about consent and everything but um it's really difficult. So on, on a number of levels, first of all, like children much younger than 11 and 12 can learn about intercourse. Like the World Health Organization says that children as young as six are well able to understand 
how sperms and eggs get together and that one of those ways would be um, a penis putting sperm into a vagina. Right? And of course, we all know that there are other ways that sperms and eggs get together too. But see, if you look at that, if you say, okay, well, if kids have the capacity to understand that at six, why are we waiting in our school systems five more years until they're 11 or probably even 12, six more years to say that thing? When we've just lost six years of learning that we can talk about sex and bodies and genitals and relationships and all that sort of thing, and they are normal and we're allowed to reach out for help and all that, that's six years of silence, right? And it's not just six years of silence, like it's not just a vacuum of information. What they're learning from that is these conversations, we can't have them in school. And these conversations, we can't have them with adults. And these conversations, even if they're not having them at home, we just can't have them, right? So they're not just learning that, uh, they're, just, they're not just um, not getting the information. They are actively learning that silence surrounds conversations like this. And that is why so many of us as adults now have trouble um, speaking up for what we need in relationships and in intimate experiences that we have because we've been actively taught through, you know, no fault of our own or the adults around us, actively taught that we don't talk about those things. So it's not that we have to learn how to talk about it. It's that we have to unlearn not talking about it and then learn how to talk about it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And that's not necessarily tied up with the Catholic Church and their involvement in so many schools here in Ireland, because that's coming from the Department of Education, isn't it? So that's also in the non-denominational schools, too. But does that also give us the message that that's not necessarily the job of the school, even though they do talk about lots of stuff? I can never even say the subject. Is it S-P-H-E or, you know, it's that kind of civics type where they talk about all kinds of things about confidence and caring for others and our place in the world. So that does get glossed over. Then there's also going to be a little bit of a biology lesson, but the rest of it is actually down to the parents. It's, it's not really a, a school thing. It's a, it's a family and a, and a society thing. Yeah, that's right. And um, that's damaging. It's damaging for our children because ideally in a society that's working well, um, lots of different organizations can take responsibility for reinforcing, you know, the consent message and the, you know, that we're all different and that's okay message and we're all uh, deserving of love and respect. So even in our sexual self. So it's it's a missed opportunity to give our children this ongoing message of support and encouragement. Um, and so if you think about where we are as a culture, some of us are very fortunate that we are educated enough to know that we need to have these conversations at home. So we try and fill in the gaps as best we can. But then there is the gap of the media who, you know, I know we're all trying to sell advertising space and all that sort of thing, but the media will still um, publish stories about things to do with sex that are to do with danger and things going wrong and sort of hopelessness and crisis, right? So we've got um, the media not really supporting 
as a general rule, the message that we are all awesome and we are capable of doing, having amazing relationships because who's going to click on that headline? Like we are all capable of having amazing relationships or shocking Southside secondary school sex orgy, you know, oh, click, you know. So um, so there's those two components, the family and our media. And then yeah, our, our institutions as a culture. And ideally all these things should make up a supportive, encouraging, educational, respecting space that helps our young people grow into who they are while they're respecting the people around them. But as you can see from that model, um, if if we're not educated in our family and our school is not doing a great job and then the media are feeling, you know, that they need to get clicks, then where is where is that positive space for our kids that they are 100% getting the information that they need to grow into healthy adults who understand what consent feels like in their own body and can facilitate it and encourage it in other people's bodies, you know, and, and feel like they're worthy of respect. You know, when you, when you think about it, I go, wow, no wonder it's hard work to grow up and find relationships that work um, where we can speak up for ourselves. No wonder. And I'm fascinated as well with the fear we have or the perception we have that there's a dark side of sexuality. And obviously there are things like rape, like sexual abuse, which understandably are going to to create fear. But again, I never thought about the empowerment that you give especially children, to give them the language if something's happening to speak out is really important, number one. But this whole idea that if we inform children about this, that we're going to be somehow taking away their innocence, it's a strange correlation between the two, Mm. isn't it? And that taking away their innocence is one of the sort of the main roadblocks that people or parents or other adults raising children have around taking on this responsibility to have these chats. And I sort of think about it like that the word innocence is actually being misused in this instance, that when children don't have information about the fact that what their genitals are called and that they are just for them and and when children don't have the ability to, they've been actively shown that they can come to an adult and tell them about things that have gone wrong. Now, I'm just going to go on an aside for a minute because one of, um, I got an email from someone a few weeks ago and one of the reasons she was coming to me to learn how to have conversations that connected her to her children about sensitive stuff was because um, she had um, an experience of sexual abuse growing up and her words were something well with this exact thing I didn't have the words and I obviously didn't feel safe enough to be able to confide in anyone and neither did my cousin right she didn't have the words and she didn't feel safe and so um, when we're thinking about innocence I actually think the word that people need to put there is we're not protecting our child's innocence because our child's innocence can be damaged damaged or um, betrayed by the people around them because we all know that child sexual abuse, the main perpetrators of that are people in our child's family or in their close inner circle, right? That's not about in- innocence. We keep our children ignorant if we don't give them the information to help them feel like they have the words and they can come to us and it's a safe space to speak up about something that didn't feel right to them. And when I hear someone use this, yeah, but my child's innocence, I just feel so angry because I remember stories like this. I'm hearing stories like that all the time of people that didn't have the words and didn't feel safe enough to come and speak up because their innocence were being protected. And, um, you know, you can probably hear in my voice that it's not right and it's not fair for our children to be kept ignorant in this way and for it to be labelled as innocence because it's it's just not 
innocent at all. And how much then do we expose them to? I mean, you're talking about layered conversations, so we're answering their questions as honestly and as in childlike language. But things like if sex comes on the television, I mean, you're not going to sit a six-year-old down in front of an 18s movie and, and, you know, head off to the shop. But how much do we need to shield them from these things or do we need to to let them happen and then explain them in, in a better way? How, how do we do them? How much do we expose them to? Yeah, so first of all, I, would, I wouldn't even use the word expose because to me that word is like this sort of like a sense of like, okay, I'm going to open my trench coat and expose my whatever it is. That's not <laughs> what we're doing. We are, well, I use the word layering, but it's essentially we're introducing information that helps our child understand themselves and the world right? That's what we're doing. And so um, that can look like from before our child is four, teaching them that uh, their body is awesome and it belongs to them. And um, this is what your genitals are called. And um, you can, we, we talk about genitals in our house. So, you know, we, you and I've been talking about, well, how we give information to children, but we've also been talking about how we can give them the skills. And we've been also talking about how we establish the habit of talking in our house. So when we talk about anything to do with the body or genitals or families or babies or um, or what makes our body feel nice, like hugs from people we trust and who are the trusted people in our family, every time we do that, it's like um, another demonstration to our child that we talk about things we talk about things we talk about things we talk about things in our family we talk about things right so um you said there earlier claire about how do we let something happen and then we talk about it it's the opposite we talk about things so that when they happen our child knows oh oh yeah we've talked about this before so it's almost like taking back our agency taking back um control of our family and saying, I'm not going to wait until we're in the car and something comes on the news about assault or uh, my child is in the schoolyard and um, someone tells them what rape is or shows them a picture of someone naked. I'm not going to wait. That's not what this is about. Um, I'm actually going to prepare my child and show them that I am the adult they can come to for things. Because the analogy is this, like it would be like um, not teaching our child anything about road safety until they step off the curb one day and we have to pull them back and then we give them the lecture about how to cross the road. Like we just would not do that. I don't know about you, but I was getting my kid to press the button on the pedestrian crossing before they were even out of the their, their stroller. You know, and it's how in road safety we're layering that on all the time and we're slowly building up to, you know, then they hold our hand as they cross the road and then they cross the road as they're standing next to us and then eventually they're allowed to cross the road on their own. And we have, that's layering. That's layering skills and information. And we do that exact same thing with this part of being human, that sexual part of being human, which is just like road safety, water safety, um, learning about our digestion and what sort of foods we eat. and it, It's exactly the same thing. So what about porn then? That lurks around like the, the big evil. Is that something to be feared, especially now kids have such access to the internet and, and to smartphones? Porn is not sex education. Absolutely. It is super, super duper bad sex education. So and it's not meant for kids. So when you say it's meant to be feared, I think what I say is it's not useful for children. It's absolutely not useful and it can be damaging if they don't have the information and the support to make sense of what they're seeing. And what I mean by that is understand that what they see, if they happen to see it, is not real life. It's designed for adults. It can cause their body to feel emotions like um, maybe shock or fear or curiosity or even interest. So um, porn is absolutely one of these topics that we are getting in ahead of in our family. And again, we're laying the foundation of skills for our child, like 
if you see, so here's an example, I'll give you an example of a conversation. Um, inside the Evolved Family Method, which is the method I use to guide families through these conversations, um, we have a sentence starter strategy called um, I learned something new today. And so you could use a sentence starter strategy like that and say, go to your kid and say, I learned something new today, um, that there are videos of naked people on the internet. Even if you didn't learn that today, if you knew, if you've known that for 30 years, that doesn't matter. I'm just giving you a way to start it. There are, there are videos of naked people on the internet and um, oftentimes they are doing things to each other's genitals or private parts or penis or vulva, whatever words you like to use. And um, I've just realized that I've never said to you that if you come across that sort of thing, it's not for kids and sometimes it can make you feel a little bit weird inside. Um, and then you can go into some some practical like what to do if someone shows it to you or um, if you come across it by mistake when you're Googling something like Dick Van Dyke or um, why are breasts big, those sort of questions that children will Google you know, just because they're interested. And a conversation like that where you've brought it in, I don't know about you, Claire, but that didn't feel, I wasn't using scary language. I wasn't saying it was dangerous, even though, you know, it's not helpful to children because we need to keep track in, in our adult brain about why our kids shouldn't be watching it. But what our child needs to know the most important thing they need to know is we talk about this with them. They can come to us and ask us questions. It's not really great. They might see it by mistake and we won't blame them if they see it, but they definitely need to reach out to us for help. And can we talk about pleasure a little bit? Because it's not something that ever comes into to sex education. As you said, it's, it's all about the reproductive system and, and that's it. And I, I think back to growing up and I think it was rather skewed in a, in a sexist way that men had these urges that they couldn't control and and women had this duty to help in this area but it was never supposed to be a pleasure for them and how important is it for you to instill that in your kids with the correct language or is that something we learn as we grow older we can absolutely be building the foundation of um, conversations about pleasure with our kids when they're young because it doesn't, it's our body is designed to feel pleasure, not just sexual pleasure, all sorts of pleasure. And that's the entry level conversation, I think, that um, we can say to our kids from a very early on, you know, our bodies are designed to feel nice. Um, you put a square of chocolate into your mouth, it feels nice. What does that feel like? You know, um, you jump on the trampoline if you like that sort of thing. What does it feel like? How did your body tell you it was enjoying? jumping on the trampoline. Um, you know, what does happiness feel like? It's a lot of, when you think about it, sort of mindful strategies of noticing how our body feels good, like um, what skin on our body feels nice to touch. And, and then we can segue into, and then, you know, there are other parts of our body that feel good too, and that having conversations about that because, again, remember we are, giving our child permission to talk to us about anything, giving them opportunities to practice the skill of talking about anything and hearing us talk about it in return. So, you know, keeping in mind what you referenced there, Claire, which is about the inequality and who was allowed to sort of actively seek pleasure, which gender and what genders were not, like how we counteract that in our family by saying um, everyone has the right for their body to feel nice. You know, and when we're an adult, we'll get to share our body with someone else if that's what you'd like to do. Not everybody wants to do that. Some people do want to do it. But while you're a kid, your job is to learn um, how your body tells you what feels nice. I think when we consider pleasure outside of the context of just sexual pleasure, it becomes far more manageable and far more um, simple and maybe accessible to talk about in our homes. Have you received any backlash or criticism for the work that you do? It's not for everyone. <laughs> um, I'm very fortunate in, I think that people who don't see this as important just don't come into my world because 
you know, if you're seeing a weird Australian person with bizarre pink glasses sitting in a car every week answering a question about genitals or sex, you're not going to want to stick around for that. So um, I have had instances where I've been engaged to do school education. Um, I remember one a few years ago and um, it was a Catholic school. A lot of Catholic schools have engaged me to come in. And um, two weeks before that was due to happen, I got a call from the principal, super apologetic, like her principal's jobs are super hard when you think about the cultures of schools, you know, like there's, there's so many different families with so many different viewpoints in there. Anyway, someone had um, looked me up online and seen that I'd done an episode of sitting in a car about how to talk to kids about pregnancy termination. And um, they said it wasn't in line with the ESOS of the school. And so um, my contract was, was terminated, but that's part of it. You know, that's part of the work. And I understand that to change the world, it, the, the nature of it is that you're sort of standing on the edge of, of comfort. I'm not really, I don't really have the luxury of standing inside the circle of comfort. I have to stand just outside the circle of comfort if I want to reach the families who need my work. And the families that need my work are the ones that have memories of conversations or, or no conversations when they were growing up that did not prepare them for puberty, did not prepare them for sort of understanding what consent was. It was a sort of a sense of silence and shame about maybe who they were. Um, those are the parents and the guardians that I am looking to find. And I can't find them if I sit in my echo chamber of everyone singing kumbaya going oh yeah we talk about clitorises and penises here that's i'm not here for those people i'm here for the ones who want to make a difference who are saying i now realize there has been in the fam in my family line and i want it to stop with me some people say you are sexualizing children you are taking away their innocence i can take that my shoulders are strong i've been doing this for a long time now but if it means that you get to find me um, when you didn't know that help was available, then I am absolutely here for it. And the great thing is the kids, you know, I certainly know with with mine, I've discussed it more with my son than, than my daughter at this stage. But, you know, we've talked consent. We've talked sex can be fun, not just for making babies, that it doesn't have to just between, be between a man and a woman. We've touched on porn. He's asked me some fairly out there questions but then he just gets up and goes, and by the way, like, will you get Nutella tomorrow? Or they go back to their game. It doesn't become this massive big deal that you think it will. You just sort of weave it in. I heard you talk on a podcast. I'll, I'll end on this. Um, you told the condom story about how your child knew what a condom was, but her little pal didn't. And she just informed her and it got back to the other mom. And that that was almost the catalyst for you to go and do your MA in sexuality studies. And you said, and I was actually looking for my passion project in life. Have you found it? And how do you feel now that you've done that study and now you're, you're doing the work? That's, that's who you are. And by the way, I think you look like Demi Moore with day uh, in the glasses so don't think you look like a weirdo <laughs> sitting in the car but how do you feel now that you are oh, her? I I don't think I can actually describe I'll, I'll do my best what it feels like to be so completely aligned with my first of all the the skills that I have like I have skills to do this which I don't think I realized until I did my my master's in sexuality like to to be fully aligned with the skills that I have and I suppose a courage that I didn't know I had that I can speak out about things um I wake up in the morning and it's like work is not work it's more like I feel like I am just a sort of a pipeline of something important that is bigger than any of us. And it just so happens that I was in the right time, in the right place, 
with the right skill set to be able to bring that really important message and knowledge down into the world. And so it doesn't really even feel like it's about me, Claire. It feels like it's about the greater good and hundreds and thousands and, you know, tens of thousands of families and children who will get to experience being able to respect themselves, like truly, truly deeply respecting their own individuality, right? Having the skills to speak up about that even when it's difficult and to be able to respect the people around them who are different to them. Like the world is going to be an unbelievably amazing place the more children that have that that, that rock-solid insurance. So you ask me what does it feel like? I actually feel like I want to cry. <laughs> it's the joy of it. Because to go back to the 11-year-old, the 11-year-old me, and just for the record, I did grow two breasts roughly the same size. I think about her and there is such a sense of relief that I have been able to give her what she didn't have. I've given it to her as an adult, right? And so she was the first of the kids that I got to support through parenting and um, and there's just something joyful and wonderful about that. Well, Sarah Sproul, keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. And thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.